What are your views in general on fiat as money? Well, there are huge advantages to the political class, right? Because they can produce it either in a direct way through fiscal policy or roundabout way through monetizing debt on the monetary side. And they can do all kinds of stuff with it. And a lot of times the, the price for doing that stuff is paid, you know, a decade or two or even generations down the road. Mm-hmm. And so they benefit from buying votes in, in effect. So absolutely, fighting wars, there's all kinds of political benefits to fiat for the political class. For, the, for us, the, the, uh, you know, the turf for the gang members, um, it's all downside. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor, and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor-based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by N. Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Jeff Deist, welcome to the What Is Money Show. Thanks very much. Great to see you. So good to have you. Uh, we met, I think, for the first time in Nashville, Tennessee at the, oh, the Mises event. Uh, you gave a great speech on a, a book, I believe, you had recently written. If you say so. <laughs> Um, you were talking about speeches. They're starting to run together. Gotcha. It was a, it was very insightful speech just on the nature of how politics have devolved recently and, you know, the relationship to, to economics in general, um, by way of quick introduction, you spent a decade at the Mises Institute and you are currently the general counsel at monetary metals. Um, so a man, very well studied in the field of economics and money. So I thought a natural first question for you, sir, would be the namesake of this show. What is money? Uh, What is the nature of money? And how do you explain this somewhat complicated topic to people that don't know anything about money? Yeah, isn't that interesting how such a simple question, that would be a simple answer. Uh-huh. And in many ways it is, but in I would say in the modern world, we've almost lost sight of what money is because we tend to conflate money and debt and credit uh-huh. all into one amalgamation that uh, can be disorienting. And of course, we have political money in this world. Mm-hmm. So I, I break money down into political money and market money, the, the two types of money. And they both work to an extent. You can go buy stuff with either one. Um, in a perfect world, but there's a huge difference. And so to me, money is simply the commodity that the marketplace decides is is best used to facilitate trade. 
so that people don't have to resort to barter. We all know the problems with barter. Barter societies were poor societies. Uh, MMTers don't even admit that barter societies ever existed. So that's, I think, interesting. They think money was a creation of the state from day one. Mm. Uh, but nonetheless, we understand from Menger and Mises that money ought to be simply the most saleable commodity uh, in, in any geographic area and that we can determine it, that it has value in marginal utility. Menger gave us that, that the more money you have, the less each additional unit of money is worth. Uh, and that money has value because it had a pre-existing use as a commodity. That's what Mises says in his regression theory. And that solves this question of like, this circular question, well, why does money have value? Because you can buy stuff with it. Mm. Well, why can you buy stuff with it? Because it has value. <laughs> so Mises said we had to go back and solve that. We had to go back to its earlier use as a commodity. I, I don't think people should fall into the trap like uh, of, excuse me, of saying that it has inherent value. Your gold has inherent value. So I don't think that's correct at all. Money is as subjective as any other economic good. And we as human beings imbue it with value. Uh -huh. And so right now we all want a million dollars or $10 million or whatever we want or 10 million Bitcoins. But that's just because we we assign it value. It doesn't have an inherent value. If you're starving alone on an island and dying of thirst, uh, piles of gold would be basically valueless to you. Uh -huh. So we have to understand that, that, that value is contextual and subjective at all times. So uh, Mises and Menger basically solved the, the problem of what money is in economics and, and made it a conceptual thing for us. Uh, there was obviously a big debate when Bitcoin was a baby back in the early 2010s about whether it satisfied Mises's regression theorem, whether mm. go back and find a pre-existing use for it as a commodity. And I think there are lots of ways you can approach that. Much smarter people than me have written big lengthy articles about that and say, well, it's it's tied up in the mathematics of it. The the algorithm is tied up in the tech. It's tied up in the immutability. It's tied up in the novelty. Mm -hmm. You know, people forget that Bitcoin was novel at the beginning. Oh my gosh, I just traded 10,000 Bitcoin mm -hmm. for a pizza. It got delivered. Uh, whoops. <laughs> it should be right. that. But at any rate, um, you know, I don't think we should get hung up on that because at the end of the day, Money is what the market says is. That's so important. None of us know the future. None of us individually can decide that the future of money is Bitcoin. Oh, the future of money is gold because fiat currencies are going to collapse and everyone's going to go back to what they knew. And this and that. That's not up to any of us individually. That's a collective decision by markets, uh, first and foremost. And that you can't overcome markets ultimately. Mm-hmm. Political money, which is my term for fiat money, created by government treasuries in coordination generally with their central banks, is an attempt to impose money mm. by law, by fiat. And, and uh, ultimately, I would argue that that is a fool's game and that the political pressures on political money will be too great to have it maintain its value. Because when we know what money is, and then we look back at Menger and Mises and say, well, what's its purpose? Its purpose is to help us overcome barter and to transmit value through time and space. Uh -huh. Give us a store of value. There's some very interesting questions I'm sure we'll get to with respect to gold versus Bitcoin on that question. So uh, a medium of exchange, a store of value, pre-existing use uh, arises naturally on the marketplace as a commodity. These to me are the big elements of what money is. But today, Robert, we look, I mean, we have shadow bank. Uh -huh. Sounds sinister, but that's just like Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage is the biggest shadow banking institution on earth. It's not sinister. Um, how much how much money have they created in effect? You know, the, they've made it possible for a lot of people to buy houses. So that kind of looks like money. Uh, you know, uh, you get into M3. You get into M4, broader aspects of money. Are treasury bills today almost a form of money because they're, they've enjoyed such great status and, and they've been that liquid mm. for that long? Um, you know, what, what is money today has become very, very clouded. And because our whole money system is based on debt as opposed to a shiny rock. Uh, sitting there that's that's melted down into a coin with no counterparty, um, 
we've blurred the distinction between money and debt enormously in society. And so as a result of all this, you know, you and I, we might be geeks and we like to go back and read books that Mises wrote in 1912. Mm-hmm. But, it, you know, we shouldn't be blaming normies for, for not wanting to have this conceptual or cerebral exercise. They just want to have some money, preferably more of it from their job. And they sure would like it if it covered their bills. And that gets harder and harder when gas is four bucks or when bacon, you know, you go to Walmart and, and look at a pound of bacon for our, us carnivore people. Mm-hmm. You know, just unbelievable. Um, and, and so average people may not be be interested in the discussion that we're having, this definitional discussion. But I'll tell you what, they they sense that something's wrong with of dollar. And I think that, that that the fact that they sense that is going to have not just economic, but political ramifications. Yes, many excellent points there. Um, I guess we could say that market money is an emergent socioeconomic phenomenon, not decided by any group or individuals uh, alone, right? Yeah, it's like a social consensus, something something kind of like language, right? It just sort of emerges. No one decides what words come into use or go out of use in language, just like no one decides which money is or which monetary good is promoted as money. And all, and to uh, I think this is to Minger's point, if I recall correctly, that every good exhibits some degree of moneyness, right? Certain things are more saleable than other things. And the thing that is the most saleable is what we traditionally call money. Is it safe to say or proper to say that political money is kind of like the weaponization of money or it's actually being used less as a tool and more as a an instrument for control, manipulation, things like that? And that the politicization of money leads to its destruction, typically, uh, as we see in hyperinflations across history? I think it's absolutely a weapon. Now, it may not have always had its origins in that, and there have been plenty of good, well-meaning, moral people involved in the U.S. monetary system, even on the political and central banking side since its inception, true believers who think they're doing the right thing and that you know, the government has to provide money. So I'm, I don't want to discount that. It's Sometimes we fall into this trap of viewing everyone as a devil. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, in effect, yes, money is a weapon. And that doesn't really matter what kind of political money we're talking about. We're, we're talking about the United States with the world's reserve currency for our dollar. That allows us to not only export inflation, mm-hmm. but to boss the rest of the world around in our payment system to pay for wars and boss them around militarily that we wouldn't otherwise be able to pay for through taxes, a whole host of ways that makes us the bully. Uh, if you look at the euro, I would argue that the ECB is a is a sort of a minor version of that. Uh, money becomes a weapon in terms of foreign aid, in terms of debt. A lot of third world countries or, or what we may call second world developing countries uh, are forced to borrow in dollars or euro, currencies they can't print up. Mm. Uh, to repay. But even in a country that's not nearly as well, you know, we look at the terrible example of the former Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, uh, its government basically weaponized currency and drove the the population in penury with uh, hyperinflation. We've seen that in Argentina more recently. Uh, Even today, you know, the great cautionary tale that is the last few years in Turkey. My goodness, those, those poor people you know, the, the Turkish lira was basically two to one with the euro back around 2010. Mm-hmm. Two lira to one euro. And Erdogan was saying, you know, we're going to join the, uh, the eurozone. We're going to join the EU. Um, and now fast forward, and, and, you know, I don't know what it is. It's been at least 20 to one um, in, mm-hmm. in the last year or so. So, you know, that Erdogan and some of his predecessors basically weaponized that currency against his own people. In effect, and so I, I think any any political tool, legislation, uh, armies, courts, currency can absolutely be weaponized against ordinary people. It's just the nature of politics, which we would view as as basically um, a proxy for war itself. Yes, yeah, yeah. I heard it put that um, warfare is a function of fiat currency, largely. I mean, at least. Not all warfare, but let's say World War One, World War Two. You know the the scale, scope, and severity of those conflicts would not be possible without fiat currency. So, 
pretty clear that it's uh, very much, it, I don't think it's an overstatement to, to call it a, a weaponization of money. Um, so yeah. if, we're, if we're looking at the most successful market money historically, which is gold, what are your views on gold as money? Is it something we can go back to? Is it something we need to go back to? Um, if so, how? I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of look at our current paradigm as the ultimate outcome of gold because we needed to centralize its custody so we could scale its use, and then obviously the centralization of that custody led to central banking. Central banking led us to a global fiat standard. What are your views on gold as money as, as far as advantages, disadvantages, and is it something that we can ever make use of as money globally? Well, we certainly could. And uh, the digital apparatus we have makes the divisibility question much easier mm-hmm. uh, than in the past where gold was only a physical thing. Um, well, it still is only a physical thing, but it could be represented digitally. Okay. And, and thus... Um, you know, may, you know, you sliced up however small you might want to to buy a pack of gum or whatever it might be. Uh, we certainly could. I don't think we will. I, I don't think we will, any Western country will ever return to a gold standard. But absent some, you know, enormous calamity, which just created either the military conditions or a populist uprising of such ferocity uh, that something like that was even possible. Now, the, whether the Eastern countries would ever consider it or Russia, I mean, I think in some ways they'd like to. So I don't think we would uh, or will, but we certainly could and should. Um, one of the big criticisms of gold, and I think it's a valid one, was its weight and uh, the difficulty in, in, in porting it around and also the, the need to secure it in vaults and the need to assay it to determine it's, uh, you know, it's, that it's real, uh-huh. it's you know, 99.9% sure, um, all of those things lent themselves to centralized control of it, uh-huh. whether by big banks and then ultimately later by state treasuries and central banks. Uh-huh. And so, you know, that that is definitely a, a problem with gold. Uh, it worked it worked exceedingly well during that bright, shining period of, of unbelievable prosperity in the 1800s up until the early 1900s. I mean, it proved itself. And it also proves a point which dovetails with Bitcoin, which is at the end of the day, especially today with shipping, with air travel, with digital communication instantaneous, the world really wants one. Uh Um, Now, the fact that we have almost as many monies as we have sovereign nations is a political arrangement. I I would say that's not an economic or market arrangement. I would say that's something that politicians have imposed. But when they can impose that, like... Uh, Zimbabwe, for example, there's some fascinating stories about it. How if you go to Zimbabwe, uh, they just gave up and said, you know, we're going to use the dollar. And so shopkeepers, I'm told, in Zimbabwe are remarkably adept at calculating all kinds of exchange rates between all different kinds of currencies in their heads. Now, you might come off on a little bit worse side of that exchange in terms of your change. But at any rate, and the uh, shopkeepers in Turkey are as well. I mean, they're, you know, if you pull out some euro or some dollars, a shopkeeper in Turkey is not going to turn you down. Right. Um, he or she is going to accept that. Uh, but so, so in a sense, the world wants one currency and a global, a world of global trade definitely wants one currency. And gold was that. Gold was for the world to a lesser extent silver, but, but primarily gold. And so that's, I think there's a, a really important lesson. Um, and, and I would love to go back to a classical gold standard. There's, there's very little I would seek more for, for the health of America. I think the destruction of the dollar is, um, is ultimately the end of all of this and our material well-being, you know, and uh, the world my teenagers are going to inhabit or maybe their kids, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I view gold as... Uh, a remarkable story because for 5,000 years, it's basically never gone to zero, <laughs> which means there's never a time when grandpa died and left you some gold that you were like, oh man, just some gold. I mean, it was always, it was like, hey, great, this is worth a lot as opposed to, there's lots of times when grandpa died with some stock certificates in some company that's out of, <laughs> for example. Uh, so it's never gone to zero. And even since 1971, 
I was listening to a podcast with Tom Luongo, if you know that. Uh-huh. And um, our friend Caitlin in Wyoming, uh-huh. um, the, the head of Custodia Bank, Caitlin Long. Yeah. And Caitlin made, I thought, an interesting point. She said, the whole point of gold, the whole purpose was to act as a tether on debt, on national debt. In other words, you, you were able to redeem your paper currency for gold. Therefore, that put restraints on government spending. Mm-hmm. And she said, once that last tether was gone, first in the 30s for individuals and then in 1971 for foreign governments and central banks, once that tether was gone, gold lost its 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 reason to be. Right. And so if that's true, we would think that its price would have fallen since over 50 years now, since 1971, to basically just industrial and jewelry use. You know, maybe 100 bucks an ounce, 200 bucks an ounce, I don't know, something like that. But the fact that it still hovers around 2000 is because in people's mind, whether those are central banks buying it up, which they certainly are, uh, national treasuries, or just big companies and, and individuals who, who hold it secretly, mm-hmm. um, is that deep down, they still think it has some sort of money, some sort of quality that gives it value above and beyond just its industrial and jewelry uses, which I would argue is are nowhere near 19 or 100 bucks an ounce. So there's just something about it. And I, you know, I want to sound mystical or something like that, but, but markets are what they are. Yeah. And markets have never sent gold to zero mm-hmm. in thousands of years. So that's that's an incredible story. And if, if Bitcoin is going to knock gold off its perch, its historical perch, not its current use perch, uh, I think Bitcoin should have to consider that that's heavy lift. Definitely. The you know, multi-century head start gold has and the established track record is certainly unrivaled, as far as I can tell. Um, and one of the main qualities of gold is that it has a very inflexible supply. So it's been a very reliable store of value over time, right? The What the common trope people typically throw out as a fine man's suit has cost one ounce of gold for you know hundreds of years. Uh, there's other examples. So it, it maintains its purchasing power. Looking at the other end of the spectrum, looking at fiat currency, which is in many ways kind of the opposite of gold, right? It solved the portability problem, especially when it's electronic or digital, it can just be beamed around the world super fast, but it's not anchored into economic reality in any way. So it can be produced ad infinitum. It has essentially zero scarcity, um, not at any one point, but in the long run, they, they all tend to fail due to excess production. What are your views on fiat as money? Are there advantages to it? Um, ob- there's some obvious disadvantages, which we've already touched on, but um, what are your views in general on fiat as money? Well, there are huge ad- advantages to the political class right? because they can produce it either in a direct way through fiscal policy or roundabout way through monetizing debt on the monetary side. And they can do all kinds of stuff with it. And a lot of times the, the price for doing that stuff is paid you know, a decade or two or even generations down the road. Mm-hmm. And so they benefit from buying votes in, in effect. So uh, absolutely, fighting wars, there's all kinds of political benefits uh, to fiat for the political class. For, the, for us, the, the uh, you know, the turf for the gang members, um, it's all downside. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's a terrible curse. And even though as Americans, we have enjoyed uh, what the French uh, finance minister called our exorbitant privilege because the dollar is the world's reserve currency and we can export inflation effectively. You know, we send them these depreciating dollars and the Chinese send us actual stuff. Like you roll into Walmart, which right. is like great cheap stuff everywhere. I, I mean, it's fantastic for us. But uh, at the end of the day, it's bad for our soul. I think it erodes us as a country. It makes us it gives us a false sense of reality and a false sense of wealth. It gives us a false sense of our productivity, I believe, as a nation. Mm. Uh, it lulls us into um, thinking that we're bigger and badder than we are. So, it, it, you know, it's like giving more uh, alcohol to a, a drunk. Uh, you know, it, uh. it makes him feel better, but are you actually doing him a favor? Um, so there, there's tremendous downsides to political money. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, the world wants one money, and the money it's got is the U.S. dollar. 
I mean, that's right. everywhere between the SWIFT system, between OPEC, between international settlements, between so much of international debt is denominated in dollars. I mean, the dollar really is a beast. And it's been it's been great for Americans in in that fun way, but it's in that uh in the long run, it's made us softer and weaker. And I think it's hollowed us out from within because instead of having to sort of build new wealth every generation and accumulate it and hopefully don't spend it all and leave some to the next generation, um, we've had this sense of living large without having to work as as hard as we otherwise would. So it's um, you know, it's seductive. Mm. You can see the seductive power because look, people like me have been saying since 1971 that this is all going to blow up. Mm-hmm. We've been wrong for 50 years. It hasn't blown up. And so, you know, when Paul Kriegman says, yes, 32 million, you know, debt, governments aren't families. They don't have household budgets. The, the U.S. debt is meaningless. You, boy, oh boy, you can see why a lot of normies would not along to that. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. The alcohol analogy is very apt because it is inducing a dependency, right? And in the same way the alcoholic is dependent on the alcohol, we become very dependent on foreign production, right? We, we've eviscerated our industrial industrial base in the U.S., and now we're very dependent on you know the output of China and other countries to just really get by and enjoy our standard of living. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology. iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touchscreen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air-gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's really a a brand-new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. Um, Okay, and then if we look at Bitcoin as money, it's sort of... I mean, in my view, it's kind of combined the useful properties of gold and that it has this, you know, has an absolutely inflexible supply. So it's very good at expressing or storing value over time, but it's also a, a digitally native instrument. So it's very easy to move across space, sort of so- solving the portability problem by effectively dematerializing gold. Um, what are your views on Bitcoin as money? Well, I'm hopeful for it. Uh, our my, my CEO and founder of Monetary Metals, Keith Weiner, is a is a Bitcoin critic. Uh, he's presented some what I believe are novel arguments against it that I haven't heard from other people. Uh, he debated Pierre Rochard. You probably know him. Yep. Um, a few years ago at the Mises Institute for a, a Soho Forum debate with Gene uh, Epstein uh, on this very topic, and so he presents some of those arguments there, but. To me, it's again, it's not up to me or Keith Weiner or Pierre or the or the most hardcore Bitcoin maxi mm-hmm. to say what whether Bitcoin is money. That's up to the market. Yeah. To date, its price volatility probably uh, makes it a, a, a far less than ideal currency. You no, know, for purchases because on the on the shopkeeper's end, he can know the instant price. You know, if you're a Starbucks and you're selling a sandwich for. Well, sandwiches at Starbucks used to be five bucks. It's like 12 now. Um, but whatever they are, uh, you know, if you're getting 12 in Bitcoin and then that's going to, you know, fluctuate rapidly in a week or something, that might not be ideal for the Starbucks owner. Um, and, and also the fact that there is a learning curve, you know, to get up to speed. Uh, and especially since you need to have cold storage, you need to have your keys. You can't just uh, be lazy and have it on an exchange. Uh, so that that goes to um, adoption, and that goes to uh, network effects. You know that th- those are going to be slow on the uptake, which affects it, and also the the inability to uh, 
you know, some some people would argue, and even Rothbard to an extent said, you know, the money supply shouldn't be fixed. You know, saying it, it can, saying it's got a hard cap on it uh, is not necessarily what the market would say. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, we view Bitcoin's hardness as a as a upside. And and you mentioned gold mining earlier. I mean, even when the gold price goes way up and miners go into hyperdrive to try to make money, it's very difficult to increase the gold supply more than two three percent in a given calendar year. Uh-huh. I mean, most gold is already here. Uh, and with Bitcoin, we know that that mining becomes even even more difficult and then ultimately impossible uh, in the coming years. So the the hardness is. It's a virtue. It, it could be a bug. Um, and the ability to run a finance system, right? If a, if a currency is really, really fixed in supply and, um, you know, it, as long as we're not at that fixed supply rate yet, if, if the maxis are correct and it's going to be going up and up in value, then people are going to be reticent to, to use it for finance, right? I mean, it's just like, well, why would I why would I lend this? I'm just, I, you know, I want, I want, I just want to keep it uh-huh. um, or buy more of it. I'm not going to worry about using it as a financial instrument. It's it's, a, it's a, an investment. And so that takes away a little bit from its money and its quality. I mean, I'm, I'm a fan because it, the desire to separate money from state is, is so incredibly noble. Um, I don't know who Satoshi is. I know someone who knows or, or claims to know 100%. Um, you know, the uh, the simplicity of it, what is the, the white paper is 11 pages or something? Yeah, nine or, nine or 11, yeah. Yeah. The So I think it's very noble. I don't think it was a CIA creation or something like that. Of course, I could be wrong. Uh, and, and it's such an important impulse. And Hayek had that great quote where he said, you know, maybe something will come along to replace the app. It'll, it'll sort of be on the slide. Uh-huh. It'll just happen off to the side and governments won't really notice. And then all of a sudden it'll be, it'll be in front of us and adopted. So that maybe, maybe that'll turn out to be uh, quite, quite a prediction on Hayek's point. But we're, we're not there yet. And I think the better maxis, there are, there are scummy, slimy people in, in crypto. Uh-huh. But even in Bitcoin, there are some get-rich-quick types. There's nothing wrong with that per se. But there is something wrong with it when you're talking up a book or trying to scam people or, you know, doing weird things with Bitcoin like Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, but the good maxis, the maxis who understand Austrian economics, they understand that this is a multi-decade experiment. Yeah. Um, you know, this is long-term. They're thinking about their grandkids. Yeah. And so... I would have to say that I don't know whether Pierre's right or Keith Weiner's right. You know, we, we don't we need a crystal ball for that. But I I love Bitcoin conceptually, and I hope for it. Yeah, a lot of great points there. And then um, one other question. So you mentioned earlier uh, the Mises regression theorem that you know a money needs to be demanded as a commodity or for some industrial use prior to becoming uh, demanded as a, a medium of exchange or as a money. And there, there's kind of an outstanding debate about whether or not Bitcoin fits the, the Mises regression theorem. Is that kind of a moot point now, now that Bitcoin has an established market cap and it's only really useful as money? Does it sort of, does it make that entire debate kind of moot, I guess, or even theoretical and the practicality of it is, well, Bitcoin exists and Bitcoin has a market cap, or do you think that's still a relevant debate? It's moot. I mean, we only have to go back a little over a decade to the origins of Bitcoin, you know, so we can, you know, we don't have to go back into the mists of time or something. We mm-hmm. can just go back in our lifetimes. And, and and I would say both the encryption of it, the the uh, the math of it, the novelty of it at the outset, the tech, mm-hmm. you know, the tech itself, the blockchain, with all all of those things, arguably could be the source of that pre-existing use or or pre-existing value. So, I mean, I I think you're right. It it's established enough now where that that's. Um, you know, that's a theoretical and abstract discussion by Mises. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
very much so. I mean, you could go back to the earliest uses of gold and you'd have to be, you know, you'd have to really be going back in history and relying on historical documents or history books or something. And so you wouldn't know for sure. Uh And I would say the same thing is true of Bitcoin. We don't have to know. The market is the market. And um, it's, it's, we're very lucky to live in a time where we can watch this. Yeah, I agree. Definitely agree with that. It's fascinating. Um, you know, you mentioned Hayek, the sly roundabout way that we might take money out of the hands of government. Uh, I think Milton Friedman maybe predicted something in the early days of the internet that we needed a digital cash to really get the internet, um, to get the internet to realize its full potential. So there's been, you know, Henry Ford, they talked about an energy currency back in the 20s, I think. So there've been these sort of pseudo predictions that something like Bitcoin might emerge one day, but it's, it, it is very exciting <laughs> to be alive and see it happening. Um, you've been hosting some Twitter spaces, uh, and having some discussions about this recently, the idea of the U S dollar supremacy coming to an end. Are we seeing that happen right now in your estimation? And, and what shape do you think that takes if so? Well, I think we're in the very early stages of it, and it could be another 50 years. I mean, never, never underestimate the power of fiat and the power of guns uh-huh. and armies, nukes. Uh, but if, if it happens, if de-dollarization happens, it'll, because, it'll be because we, the U.S., did it to ourselves. It won't be because of the BRICS or anybody else. It'll be because we went so wild with our spending, we were so profligate, we saw this pitch downgrading our credit rating mm-hmm. just yesterday. And at some point, the rest of the world is going to look at the United States of America and say, these people are never going to get their physical house in order. And if they're going to sell me government debt, I want junk bond rates. I don't want this 3% crap. Uh-huh. No, I want 20%. Um, and so that day could come. But uh, I think I don't believe in de-dollarization in the near term. I am an adherent of Brent Johnson's uh, I think inaptly named uh, dollar milkshake theory. Yeah. I think it should be dollar vacuum theory, uh-huh. uh, which is basically as um, as other countries get in trouble, they actually demand more dollars, not less. You can just look up dollar milkshake theory. There's some great YouTubes on it. And I want to credit uh, Brent Johnson at Santiago Capital for, uh-huh. for coming up with it. Um, but I just think the world is, is a little too dependent on dollars and our payment systems uh, at present. And, and let's not forget the BRICS countries like every other country. Not only their central banks have gold, well, the, I think the, the Russians have primarily treasuries, or I might be getting that backwards. But, um, you know, they have lots of dollars too in their fiscal treasuries. Uh-huh. So while is it sort of geopolitical grinding game, we can call it currency wars, um, as Jim Rickards coined, uh, in that long-term grinding game, of course, Russia and China would like to see the U.S. dollar dethroned. Why wouldn't they? For all the aforementioned reasons about our, it's an imperial tool. Uh-huh. You know, they'd like to see it dethroned just like they'd like to see our latest you know, uh, aircraft carrier not go re- in reverse or something. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, in the short term, they would be hurt tremendously. If the dollar had a precipitous crash, because they've got lots of them. Mm. So it's like musical chairs and they have lots of treasuries. So it's like musical chairs. Nobody wants to be last. Everyone would want to be first when this alleged dollar dump this uh, begins to happen. Um, so I just don't think that's in the near term. But you know what? That's so far beyond my pay grade. If you were, if you were in Washington D.C. or in Moscow in 1985, and you went around saying, you know, this Soviet Union is just going to collapse another in that by about 1989, uh-huh. it's just going to collapse of its own weight. You would have been absolutely laughed right out of out of town. So, you know, it, it, you ever heard the expression uh, "slowly, then all at once"? Yeah, gradually then suddenly. Yeah, I yeah. think that's that'll be the dollar's fate ultimately. But I, I, I mean, I'm happy to discuss the BRICS uh, idea more, but I don't see it as not. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, I, and I think Brent's theory is sound. Like you mentioned it earlier, Zimbabwe, right? They just give up and they dollarize. Um, because we have this exorbitant privilege, it does seem to, it stands to reason that the US dollar would be among the last fiat currencies standing. Um, you know, given our, our geopolitical presence and its established position, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, I do want to ask you, actually, that was my next question. BRICS countries have introduced this idea of a gold-backed, or it's a proposal, rather, of a gold-backed currency. What impact do you think that could have on the existing geopolitical order and and the U.S. dollar? Well, it's an interesting idea to float. I don't know that they announced it. The media has announced it. Mm. It's not so clear whether they've actually announced it because, first of all, it was a Russian embassy in Africa made this announcement, and then some media uh, outlets picked it up, and then some people really ran with it, like Alistair McLeod, uh, who is, who's on Twitter and has written some a couple of really good lengthy articles about how it can work mechanically. Uh-huh. He, he's very knowledgeable about that, and I recommend that, but... Um, you know, India has denied it. Uh, Russia and China have said, well, it's not on the agenda at our August meeting, which is interesting, by the way, because theoretically, if Vladimir Putin was to attend that meeting in South Africa, he could be arrested because South Africa happens to be a signatory to the International Criminal Court, mm. uh, which has a warrant out for Mr. Putin's arrest. Uh, so uh, the idea, I, I suppose, is that he won't attend. But Supposedly, it's not on the agenda. Maybe it is on the agenda. But these these are the little tremors, just like the Fitch uh, credit rating downgrade. Yes, I guess yesterday was as we record this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these little tremors, these little tremors could add up to a big earthquake. And, and so, again, it's in their long term interest to dethrone the dollar. It's not in their short term interest. Mm-hmm. But what they're really talking about, I think, is a trading currency. Uh-huh. A settlement currency between nations and their central banks, not a currency that individuals within those nations or, or outside those nations would use, and not a currency that's redeemable individually. Uh-huh. Um, it would be simply, you know, each each country would have its own gold reserves in its central bank. Those gold reserves might not even move physically to any sort of centralized thing because because within the BRICS they might not trust each other so much. Uh-huh. So that gold would just sit there you know, safe at home, but it would be pledged to this trading currency uh, idea. And then uh, they would be able to, to use this to settle things between themselves and then mark as an, you know, an accounting ledger who, who owns what gold. Um, but, it, you know, at some point, I don't know, do you really, do you, if you're an international investor or trader or, or a currency person, you know, do you really trust Xi? Do you really trust the Russians? Do you really trust the Indians um, to run a, a stable currency, a solid currency that is that? You know, when we say backed by gold, what that means is that it's redeemable, at least at the national level. Again, maybe not the individual, and that's a hard thing to do. That means you can't spend too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, governments like to spend, so. It's you know it would impose a, a measure of fiscal discipline on those countries, which is very hard to imagine. I mean, China's central bank went absolutely nuts since really since about Greenspan, mm. and they built all these empty ghost city skyscrapers. I mean, their their central bank makes ours look uh, conservative. Huh. So, you know, I where are these governments going to find this newfound? Look at Brazil. I mean, Lula's openly praising communism. Where are they going to find this new fat, this this austerity? Um, mm. So you got to you got to mark me down as in the highly dubious category. Mm. Yeah, yeah, great points there. Uh, just to speak to the credit downgrade that we mentioned, uh, we're recording this on August second, twenty twenty three, and I believe it was announced yesterday or the day before, August first, that the U.S. credit was credit rating was downgraded from triple A to double A minus, I believe is correct. Um, and this is, a, I guess, a product of our our debt, right? Basically, right? We've just accumulated too much debt, so our credit rating is, has been reduced. Um, okay, one last 
question in the money domain, and then maybe we can talk about some other things. You've advocated for scrapping AML KYC laws. These are anti-money laundering and know your customer laws. Uh, state And you stated that they, this is like an excessive compliance requirement that gums up the system and creates unnecessary friction. Can you expand a bit on what that is? I think a lot of people don't even know what AML and KYC is, uh, much less the impact it has on financial flows worldwide. Yeah. Well, you got to understand part of my job is being a compliance lawyer for AML and KYC stuff. Uh, we do deals using physical gold around the world in a lot of different jurisdictions. And sometimes the, we have to account for the source of the gold. And right now, there are sanctions against using Russian gold. And gold's fungible. You can melt it down and take off a little Russian stamp or whatever. Um, so I'm sort of knee deep in this. And uh, so AML stands for money laundering. KYC stands for know your customer. Uh, these really came out of a, gosh, 1986 or 1987 uh, Paris summit. Uh, where a group of G7 nations created the, the Financial Action Task Force. And so this is a, an international approach to, to supposedly uh, protecting us from drug dealers, and, uh, you know, trafficking and all this, that they always, you know, it's about the children. Mm-hmm. Um, always for our protection. Just, yeah, it, it's always about control. It's always about capital controls. And, you know, to me, governments have no business knowing about our money and what we're doing with it, where we're transporting it. Um, you know, Switzerland lost its whole status as a, I don't want to say bank secrecy, I would say bank privacy. You know, um, they used to to not cooperate with foreign governments who asked questions. You could have a bank account in Switzerland, that was your business. You could walk into a Swiss bank with a suitcase full of cash, deposit it, and that was that. It was yours. And this, this presumption of criminality goes against everything that the Western world claims to stand for, from Magna Carta forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and I resent the hell out of it. I think capital controls are the the precursor to, uh, you know, fences with barbed wire on top of them, camps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. We'd be a little hy- hyperbolic here. Um, and, um, you know, I think money and privacy are part of, um, of human nature. And uh, we shouldn't have to answer to governments uh, about what we're doing with our money. So this idea that we have to stop illicit criminal activity or, well, okay, but that's, a, that, that's fine, but that's a criminal matter. Let the authorities go after um, criminals uh, for doing things that you and I would hopefully consider real crimes, victim, uh-huh. force and fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, but- don't put that on third parties like monetary metals to uh, assess the provenance of an investor's, uh, you know, money, his or her ability to, to make a deposit with us and get involved in our, you know, become a customer of ours. That's, uh, to me, that's just wildly authoritarian. And um, it, it's it's funny that progressives and globalists are so for this because- it really it goes against this sort of unbound world that they claim to promote. Uh, in fact, a lot of people who are for open borders, which I am not, um, a lot of people who are for open borders are actually, you know, believe in KYC and AML. Strikes me as like, so open borders for people, but not money and, di- you know, digital bank wires. And, um, and if you just look back at human history, I mean, my gosh, there's two world wars, which are recent history. Uh, I mean, some families got out of places with 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 gold, maybe in a suitcase, or with some physical jewelry on their person, or with a necklace or something. And when they arrived, maybe in America or wherever, that that was their you know first month's rent. I mean, you know, you just uh-huh. I really hate the idea of capital controls. Yeah, and information itself, even if you have nothing to hide. Just having to provide information, but not being actually prohibited from moving that, let's say, that money uh, across the border. The information itself, I would view as a form of capital. And, um, yeah. you know, just it just goes against um, everything I believe in. So uh, it, it's, it's really part of the noose 
that has been tightening this country, especially enhanced by 9-11, Patriot Act, all that stuff that came after that. Um, And uh, it's a real infringement on sovereignty too, because there ought to be a country out there that can say, F you, I'm not doing this. Right. And there are a few, but they basically become international scofflaws and suffer as a result. Yeah, it's it's a great point because it, it ultimately is a violation of privacy, right? Which is the freedom to selectively reveal or conceal oneself or one's information. And so this forced revealing of financial information is very anti-freedom, anti-privacy, and just you know, it's antithetical to the principles of the West, as you've said. So I agree strongly on that front. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the -the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Casa. Casa makes it simple to buy and secure your Bitcoin without wondering whether you're doing it right. Specifically, Casa provides a multi-key custody solution, which is by far the most secure way to custody your Bitcoin. Now when I talk about Bitcoin being theft-proof money or inviolable private property, A multi-key custody model is exactly what I am talking about. Using multiple keys lets you maintain full control of your Bitcoin while also giving you redundancy in case you lose one of the keys. It's also the best way to secure your Bitcoin for inheritance planning purposes. So go to keys.casa, that's C-A-S-A, today to sign up and use discount code BREEDLOVE. Um, Okay, Shifting out of the money domain a little bit, you recently said that democracy is a threat to free speech. I think this was in regard to a retweet by something RFK had said. And after reading Hoppe, specifically his book, Democracy, the God that Failed, I'm actually in strong agreement with you that democracy is deeply flawed. Um, But to say that in 2023 flies in the face of common sense you know, that democracy is, democracy is somehow this ultimate governance structure that we've uh, decided. But there's many, you know, there's trade-offs, right? There's advantages and disadvantages. So could you just expand a bit on the ways in which democracy is a threat to free speech? Because I think that that's a difficult pill for many people to swallow. Well, political democracy is as proven itself in the 20th and now 21st century as debacle, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, freedom. Uh, you know, go back to Woodrow Wilson, you mentioned World War One, central banks. And true democracy is expressed every day in the market. So when we talked about the world wants one money, that's mm-hmm. a democracy. Mm-hmm. Right? You know what's democratic? Is everywhere you go on earth, there's diet coke. Okay. Right. That's that's people expressing uh, choice in, in a voluntary manner. Mm-hmm. That the the marketplace, as, as regulated as it may be, is the real uh, democratic mechanism side. But mm-hmm. political democracy. You know that tweet, if I recall, was in reference to to RFK Jr. being dopey. I mean, God bless the guy; he's a baby. Uh-huh. Um, but just this dopey thing. And what had happened is some horrible woman on a uh, on a House committee that had been called by the Republicans as a dog and pony show to talk about censorship. Uh, Republicans would be happy to censor. Uh, had, you know, some Democratic woman who'd been giving her talking points by the DNC, RFK bad, um, 
you know, basically said, I, you shouldn't be allowed to talk. And we, 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 you know, because of your anti-Semitic remarks, you shouldn't be allowed to even be at this here. And so he tweeted about this. And I just thought to myself, well, democracy is what put that horrible woman in her seat, mm. right? I mean, that sees the one. So if 51% vote to shut off RFK Jr., then that's that. You know, but but people don't use democracy in the way that us, you know, sort of uh, jaded libertarians do. But it's just majority um, force. They, they use this as sort of happy catch-all phrase for legitimate mm-hmm. democratic system or democratic government is legitimate because you know well, why is it legitimate? Well, because people vote. Well, why does that make legitimate? Well, because they consent. So consent is the linchpin of legitimacy. And somehow in people's muddled minds, this all gets mixed up with democracy. And so people just throw the word out there all the time, like as a synonym for good or legitimate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think that's what dope RFK's juniors do. And I like the guy. I don't mean to be hard on. Um, so it, it just struck me as silly. I mean, what democracy does is it encourages, I tie up reference, it encourages politicians to do things now, spend now at the expense of tomorrow. Look at Social Security, passed in the 30s. It's now almost 100 years on that we have these huge entitlement uh, fiscal gaps going forward where the number of old people is going to wildly outpace the number of younger people and the whole system is going to be completely bankrupt. But the people who voted for that are long dead. Right. right? That's democracy in action. Mm. Um, thanks. You know, they offloaded their problems onto us 80, 90 years hence. Um, so it, it is interesting how uh, people are all for democracy unless and until the wrong guy wins, like Trump. <laughs> That's not democracy. Trump's a threat to us. Why is that? Well, because the Russians interfered. You know, it's like, well, if, if, it's, if voting is so fragile, that a few Facebook ads or something paid for by the Kremlin, which I doubt happened, is enough to sway things, then, you know, why is it such a great system? Why are you lauding? The other thing is, let's say, you know, let, let's just say we had, we didn't have the electoral college and we had a pure majority vote on president. And let's say, arguably, Hill, I, I don't know the facts because it's state by state and I wasn't there. But let's say arguably Hillary Clinton got more raw votes than Donald Trump in 2016. You know, and that we had sure, sure democracy, direct voting, no electoral college. That, you know, Hillary would have been installed. And everyone, all the left would be saying, see, at the end of the day, democracy works. And the people were too smart for this crazy orange man with the a reality TV show, and they knew Hillary Clinton with all of her experience as Secretary of State or whatever, you know, whatever senator, you know, that she was the wise choice. And so in the long run, democracy is great. But okay, but just, so just switch a couple of million votes the other way to Trump. All of a sudden, this is, you know, an absolute calamity, existential crisis for the whole country based on just a million or two million votes, less than 1% of the population, 330 million. What the hell kind of system is that? Right. I mean, that sounds incredibly fragile. So even if you're, even if you really are for democracy in the most direct way possible, you know, national popular vote, um, it, it's it's still incredibly easy to attack conceptually. It's it's just it's a terrible system. It's 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 anti-property because people can vote away other people's property. Right. And at the end of the day, property and life are bound up together. They cannot be separated in any meaningful way. Every every human being comes into this earth. And right now, you and I have to either stand or sit on a piece of ground. Uh-huh. You know, we have to exist in physical, corporeal space. And we have to have some clothes on our back, you know, presumably. Uh, we have to have some calories today, presumably. You don't have to, but uh, you, you have to have some water. I mean, you know, and then you, you go out in concentric circles from that with, electricity, hot and cold running water, uh, you know, all forms of energy, transport, you know, it's just endless. And so you can't separate human beings from property 
And this isn't materialism per se. This is reality. This is just, you know, we need, we need property. And so, you know, any system that puts property at risk like that is a system that I'm just not interested in. And I think we should attack it at every stage. We should make people question it at every stage. We should remind people that the term doesn't, doesn't appear. The term democracy doesn't appear in the constitution or the bill of rights. Right. And, uh, you know, we, uh, it's just it's it's just another way we've seeded language and we've seeded ground mm-hmm. to progressives of both parts. And when we give lip service to democracy, I don't care about democracy, and, and no one should. And at the if and at the end of the day, RFK does. He he just says he does. Um, they all say that until the wrong person wins. Yeah, that's excellently said. And yeah, it's a. A point that I'm amazed more people don't know is that, you know, the United States was founded as a constitutional republic, not a democracy. I don't know how we got hypnotized into thinking that we're, we're a democracy out of the gate. And I really think a good framing, uh, you put many good framings there on democracy. I think another useful one is just the tyranny of the majority, right? So if consent, which consent is the linchpin to freedom, you know, um, mutual voluntary exchange and these things, but that's not what democracy is because if you have 51% deciding, well, then you've got non-cons, you know, and non-consensual 49% sort of being pulled into that, uh, into that canopy. And it just, it doesn't make sense. And, and it, to your point on the market being like an actual pure democracy, it reminded me of that great point in the ethics of money production. I don't remember the author he cited, but he's talking about one penny being one market vote, like how we spend our money is the actual democracy. That's why we have Diet Coke all over the world, as you said. So in a way, you know, central banking and democracy, where to the extent they're creating these non-consensual exchanges, they're kind of a form of voter fraud in a way, and that they're distorting what the market would actually manifest absent the the violation of property. So yeah, it all comes down to property. I, I like how you said that, that you can't separate life and property because we, I mean, the things we create are an extension of ourselves and it's what allows us to live and flourish and, you know, be civilized. So uh, any system that attacks property, I think really needs to be attacked ideologically. Um, okay. I've kept you long enough. I would like to ask you one last question. If you got just Absolutely. a couple more minutes. I'm happy to stay on. Um, you recently tweeted, and I thought this was a cryptic tweet, but interesting. So I'm hoping you can expand upon it. You said that politics and statism impose unchosen hierarchies. Can you tell me what you mean by that? Yeah, I, cryptic is my way of, yes, too clever by half. Uh, <laughs> I just mean we have the wrong elites, right? The, the elites we have in society are, in my opinion, are not the elites we would have in a more market-based, uh, I guess, merit, a meritocracy, uh-huh. um, for lack of a better term. I know that, that that's used by some of the Francis Fukuyama types and not a lot of like that. But, um, you know, I think elite rule is inevitable. I think Michael Malice is famous for that line. Uh, elite rule is absolutely inevitable. There's going to be basically oligarchs in any system I mean, if you go to a prison, if if you if you have the un- misfortune to be assigned to prison, you know, there's going to be sort of an oligarchy within prison running things, both with the guards and the inmates. If you go in, in a social setting, I mean, it's it's just it's Pareto, Pareto um, distribution. Yeah, you know, applies uh, in the world, and so in in any society, there are going to be elites, and they are probably going to have more power over the politics and the money and the banking and the culture and all kinds of things than you do. Well, unless you work your way into that elite status and or, or be born into it. That's another nice way. Mm-hmm. But so so that's inevitable. To me, what matters is how are average people allowed to live in society? You know, are they actually able to get ahead with with sound money? Are they, you know, relatively free in terms of their you know, personal lives, their business lives. Do the, do the elites hate their guts? And in America, the elites very much hate our guts and wish us ill. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they'd like us to not be eating meat, not be driving cars, all kinds. Of 
Um, and if you're voting for Trump, they'd like to be not voting. Mm-hmm. And if you're showing up outside the Capitol for a protest on January 6th, they'd like you to be cooling your heels in one of those prisons um, for a long time. So we, we, should, we should be open about that, I think, and honest. So we've got the wrong elites. And I think that Hoppe makes the point in, in democracy that, well, say what you want about monarchs, but their fortunes, oftentimes a monarchical family was hereditary. Uh, their fortunes are more tied to the average people because if they bankrupt the country through wars, for example, um, if they overtax and face a popular result or assa- revolt or an assassination, that sort of thing, um, you know, monarchs of old, in, you know, when we think of them as these absolute powers, in many ways face more accountability than these crappy democratic politicians today. I mean, you know, nobody's assassinating Nancy Pelosi. You're not getting close to Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi is going to go off to her grave untouched. She's going to be rich, elite. She will never pay in any sense, even you know, psychic, for her vast, uh, yeah, you know, Hillary Clinton, um, George W. Bush will will go off into that gentle night like a comfy teddy bear, never with the slightest accountability for murdering a million in effect or ordering a war that that resulted. Burn. You know, so this idea that monarchs were these absolute uh, iron-fisted rulers relative to the so-called, uh, you know, democratic politicians of today, uh, Macron, Tony Blair, uh, uh, what's her name in Germany? No longer there. Um, Merkel. You know, I, I just don't think that's true. And so what we need is almost sort of like a mon- a, a, a marketplace elite, like a not a monarchy, but Natural elites who have, by their very nature, by their intelligence, by their ability, uh, by their uh, uh, touch and concern for average people, uh, that people naturally gravitate towards them and and view them as elites. And we don't have that with our current crowd at all. And um, you know we're suffering as a result of it. I think. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I, I guess. Yeah, we are hierarchical animals, so that seems unavoidable. And I guess ideally, we'd have some type of maybe an entrepreneurial elite, at least someone that's rendering favor, you know, rendering useful goods and services to the human species in their ascent to the top of the hierarchy versus these extractive political actors. Like they're not creating any value at all, they're just stealing, literally. So, yeah. That is uh, definitely an ideal, I guess, we could work towards. Um, Jeff, I, I really appreciate you having this conversation with me. I, I love digging into these abstract topics, learning, and hopefully helping people think about the world a little bit differently. And I think you do a great job of explaining these concepts in a way that people can digest. So thank you for that. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Basically on Twitter, at Jeff Deist, all one word, J-E-F-F. D-E-I-S-T. Awesome. Jeff, thank you so much. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you, Robert.